We came down to chapter 2 last time. In this chapter, he begins to get into more the definition of love and who has it and who doesn't. So he says, My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, These things write I to you, that you sin not. So he addresses the church, and he wants to be sure that we don't sin. We understand from 1 John 3, 4 that sin is the transgression of the law, and from Romans 6, 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So John saw James and Peter and Jude, the other apostles, die, and he alone was left standing of all of them, and he gives instruction here to the church about what is the most important topic that can be. Because as we know, Paul listed faith, hope, and love and said the greatest is love. So, John was one whom Christ loved very deeply, had more affection for than any of the other disciples, and John says so in third person uh, back in the book of John. So, he was the most qualified to address this issue. So, why does he start talking here about sin when we're, the whole subject of the book is love? Uh, you don't hear those two put together too much uh, with people out preaching in the world. But John puts sin in here in the book about love. And let's see why as we go on. And if any man sin, <coughs> we have an advocate with the Father, Emmanuel the righteous. So he said, we shouldn't sin. Even as Paul said, we are not to continue in sin that grace may abound. Uh, sin was something that Paul very clearly said should not occur. But being human, we will and do. But we do have Christ there uh, as an advocate before the Father, as a mediator, as our high priest, as Hebrews and other places show. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, each in his order. He hasn't forgiven the sins of the world at this point, very obviously. Uh, the wages of sin is death, and he has very clearly shown in many, many prophecies that the majority, vast majority, of people on the face of the earth are going to physically die here in the end times. So they will be suffering under the terms of the Old Covenant. Uh, it is still in effect unless and until, through conversion to the truth of God, we come under the New Covenant. So you have two covenants really existing at the same time. And he can punish the world under the terms of the Old Covenant with no problem. Now, once we have been offered the sacrifice of Christ in our lives, as once we are converted and properly baptized, we have been, then the Holy Spirit is there and Christ is there for our forgiveness now. 
Now, we understand the order of resurrections and all these people that are going to physically die because of the sinfulness of the world around us, as in Noah's day. They'll come up in that resurrection at the end of the thousand years, as Revelation 20 clearly shows, and have an opportunity at salvation then, though it is not now being offered. So, even as he said in his gospel, that God sent his Son into the world that all might be saved. It will, at, at the right time and right place, be offered to everyone. But only to a few now. Now, he says, don't sin, but if you do, we have a high priest, and his blood can cover our sins. Two are some very elemental understanding of the new covenant there. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, you'll hear in churchianity the, the expression, know the Lord. They use that a lot. You have to know the Lord. Now, John defines how you know him. He said, we know him if we keep his commandments. And yet, the whole of churchianity will say they know him, but they say the commandments are done away. Therefore, using John's words, not interpreted, but clearly spoken, he says, we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, let's add to that the next verse. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, the truth is based upon the commandments of God. And anyone on the face of this earth that says he knows God and does not keep the commandments in God's words here through John, is a liar and the truth is not in him. How many churches in this world do you know that say the Ten Commandments are still in effect? Can you name any? Nearly everybody says the commandments are done away with. They're in no effect. They have no meaning today. Just know the Lord. And yet, John says, you can't know Him if you don't keep the commandments. Therefore, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Church of Christ, the Catholics, the Mormons, name it. Evangelicals. Anyone you want to name? believes the commandments are done away with. According to God's Word, in these two verses, those people are not Christian, they do not understand Christianity, and they do not know God. How simple, how plain can it get? Now, they think they have love and don't need the commandments, but that's another pit they fall into, and we'll get to that a little later on. 
So there are many people who profess to be Christians today who do not even understand the definition of a Christian. They don't know what it is. They aren't following Christianity, though they say they follow Christ. Well, they don't say they follow Him. They say they know Him. And they accept Him. But if you accept Him, you have to accept His Word, right? Satan is very, very clever. He can put God's name on whatever religion he wishes, but if he does not follow through with the things God says to do, then that is an empty and a false religion. We need to understand that. That doesn't mean those people in those churches are lost because they're not Christians in God's definition today. They will have their chance in the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. So Christ's sacrifice is indeed for the sins of the whole world, but each in his own order. And these people who are expecting to go to heaven when they die, or hell, depending on which one they pick, or what they think, or, well, they're not going to be surprised because the dead know nothing, as Ecclesiastes 9.5 says. So they're not in heaven They're in hell in the sense of the word, the grave. But that's where they remain until the second resurrection. Then they will learn true Christianity. But they read the Bible or parts of it, don't they? What part do they read? Mostly Paul. Peter said Paul wrote things hard to understand. So even Peter recognized that even though Paul wrote Scripture... The way he wrote it was hard for people to grasp the real truth from in some cases. You will never see anybody go to James, Peter, and John to prove the law is done away with. The only place that they can possibly go that they think they have a chance is some of the writings of Paul. A little bit in Romans and Galatians, and that's about it even in Paul. And even those books talk about how the law is holy and just and good, and how we shouldn't sin, which is breaking the law. So, we need to understand this. There are people who, in God's church even, who still listen to Protestant preachers, because they think, well, they're talking about God and they must have some good. Understand that Satan's ministers are transformed as angels of light. So, even though what they say might sound good, you need to understand they don't have a clue about true Christianity. And Paul even says in 2 John 10, I mean John says in 2 John 10, If there come any to you and bring not this doctrine, which doctrine? It's the one he's talking about here, what we're reading right now. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speak. So, God says clearly through John that we are not to listen to those who might bring false doctrine. Because even as plausible and as nice or as sweet as sometimes things might sound, it will have a twist. It will have, Satan is very subtle in some of his deceptions. And he can lead us astray so very, very easily. 
it's not talking about just turning the Jehovah's Witnesses away from your door, not letting them in your house. You can let them in your house, not just Jehovah's Witnesses, but any of these religious people via radio, via television, via computer, or any other electronic means whereby you can invite them into your house. Now, God says clearly, do not do that. Is that hard to understand? How can we, if we're a part of the church of God and understand the truth, allow Protestant preachers, or any other religion for that matter, apart from the truth of God, into our houses and our minds? And your spiritual house is far more important in this circumstance or concern than your physical house. Because it's your mind, the temple of God's Spirit, that is being defiled by such teaching. I, I hear around the church here and there, somebody brought up some good shepherd or whatever. I don't know what his, the guy's name is, never heard him. But I've heard of the name three or four times that they might listen to. No. He believes the law is done away with. He doesn't keep the law at least as far as I know. I've never heard the guy, and I'm not going to. I know he doesn't have the truth of God. I don't know why that's hard for people who have been in the church 30, 40, 50 years to understand uh, that they think they're getting something good from that. Yeah, you might get a little good from it, but you're also subject to being subtly deceived and take you away from God. I'm not going to browbeat anybody. I'm not going to listen up at their door to see if they're listening to that stuff. But let's understand what God says about it. But we're not to do it. So, in one verse here, verse 4, it becomes very clear that Christianity cannot exist apart from the commandments of God. Anything that does not have the commandments is not true religion. I don't know how he could put it any clearer. And if it's not true religion, what is it? False religion. However subtle, however clever, it's false religion. Verse 5, But whoso keeps his word, in him verily, or truly, is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So he ties commandment keeping and the love of God together here in one context. That if we're following the commandments, then the love of God can be perfected in us. Now, I won't say that all those churchianity groups do not have love. They do. A lot of them have affection for each other, for their families, for their neighbors, for those they work with. They may have love for human beings, and that is not wrong. In fact, that is admirable. 
But what they do not have is agape. They do not have the love of God. They have human emotion, a good thing, but the love of God is not in them. God gives His Spirit, Acts 5.32, to them that obey, 29 and 32, one of those two. If we do not obey the law, He does not give us His love. So we need to be not confused about what human love and godly love is. Godly love is defined by the commandments and by obedience to those. And he brought that up right here very clearly. It is through keeping those commandments that the love of God is perfected. Those who keep the word, those who obey the word, okay? And that's how we know that we are in him. If we don't keep them, he's already said that we don't know him. No matter what you know about God, or think you know about him, he says you don't know him unless you keep the commandments. It is so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking we know God when we really haven't a clue. And that's the way basically all religion is today. Verse 6, He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So we are to do as Christ did. Did he keep the commandments all his life and then do away with them when he died? This prohibits that, that teaching. He taught us we ought to keep the commandments. What did he tell the young rich man? If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. He made it very, very clear that entering into eternal life was based upon keeping the commandments. Grace only comes in when we break the commandments and need forgiveness. Grace is a major part of everything. But it isn't the only thing. We repent and ask for forgiveness and His mercy and grace when we do sin. And that grace will be extended if we're not living a life of sin, but make mistakes here and there, which we all do. And thankfully we have that propitiation. But if Christ kept the commandments as He walked through life, John is telling us here, that we should walk as He walked. Do the same thing He did while He was here. And He never broke the commandments. He never sinned. And sin is the breaking of the commandments. So if He never sinned, He never broke the commandments. And He tells us that that's the way we ought to walk. And yet, nearly every church that professes Christianity on the face of the earth, says you don't need to walk that way. They're going diametrically in opposite directions to this instruction. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, 
but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. Now they heard, if they were around, Christ teach from what? The Old Testament. It's the only scripture there was when he was doing his preaching and teaching. Now he raised a lot of the Old Testament uh, letter of the law to a spiritual, a better spiritual understanding, but he didn't do away with it. So there's not a new commandment. And yet he says in verse 8, does he contradict himself in two verses here? Again, or I'll continuing, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. So what he's really saying is it's one and the same. You have the Old Testament which was breathed out of God's mouth to the writers of those books. And Christ said, I didn't come to do away with that, but to add to it, to raise it. So he shed new light on it, and that's what John is saying here. The darkness is past, the true light now shines. The Pharisees thought they had an understanding and the light of the Old Testament. But they walked in darkness and were liars because they, at least they accepted that the commandments were in effect, but they didn't follow them. So he called them liars and hypocrites. Now it's doubly bad if you say they're done away and don't follow them either. At least the Pharisees said they were still in effect. They had it half right. Modern churchianity doesn't have it at all right. And look what Christ said of the Pharisees and their attitudes and their conduct. So he shed new light on the Word of God. So that's the new part of the commandment, raising it to a spiritual level. For instance, you have the Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. God never was pleased with those. And he spoke not to them, as Jeremiah 7.22 says, when he brought them out of Mitzrayim or Egypt. They were added because of transgression. Transgression of what? The law. Now, that was raised to a spiritual level, level through the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, He is the only sacrifice we need. So it isn't that sacrifices are done away. It is that He has a continual sacrifice for us and will ultimately for the whole world when they have their chance. So there's new light shed upon the subject of sacrifice. Christ being the light. And all the other principles of the Old Testament were brought forward to be understood in a more spiritual sense. You had the physical temple in the Old Testament. Now you have Christ as the main temple and our bodies as the temple of His Spirit and our minds. And the church is also reckoned as a temple of God. And we're told not to defile the temple. 
sin creates defilement. Verse 9. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. Now, I addressed here, or John did, well, both, really. If you're part of God's church and you think the commandments are done away with, you're not really part of God's church. But if you are out in the world and don't understand what John is saying here, <clears throat> then he says you're not a Christian. So that deals basically with the world out there. Now, we who are here understand that the law of God is still very much in effect, right? Go to Revelation 21 and 22, and it says anybody that doesn't keep it won't be in the kingdom of God. The very last parting shot in the last book of the Bible confirms and affirms that keeping commandments is what is required to be in the kingdom of God. But, verse 9 is more at church people. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. You can say you understand the truth. You can say you're in God's church. But he uses a very simple analogy here, or truism. If you hate your brother you are still walking in darkness. You are not converted if you hate your brother. Conversion is a process. So if you carry animosity, grudges, hatred, scurrilous gossip, or any such thing of negativity about your brother which reflect an attitude of hatred, he says you're still in darkness. You've not seen the light. Now, how does that compare to the Ten Commandments? Christ summarized them as the two great commandments. Love God above everything and love your neighbor as yourself. So, he's already said here that commandment keeping is necessary to true Christianity. And the last six commandments have to do with loving your brother. So if you bear hatred, animosity, and any of those negative attitudes, then you are not keeping the commandments, and you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. How plain can that get? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That does not leave any room for hate, begrudging, holding sin or alleged sin over anybody's head. It doesn't allow it in Christianity. Christ did not have any of those attitudes at all. And he says, we are not either, we are to walk as he walked. Those are pretty powerful words when you understand what he's really saying. It's easy to read over it and say, well, I don't hate anybody. Do we or don't we? Do you hold anything over anybody? 
If you do, he says you are not a Christian and you're still walking in darkness. Christ is willing to forgive the sins of the whole world. That's his example. That's his life. That's what he intends to happen before the whole plan of salvation is finished. So it's an attitude. Now, some people will not follow God, but they're going to bow their knee anyway, he says. If you don't bow it, I'll break it. You will bow to God before this is said and done, regardless. He's made that very clear. But he doesn't hate anybody. It is not what God is. You know what? He doesn't hate Satan. He hates sin. Satan became a sinner. And he hates the sin that we commit. But he doesn't hate us. He doesn't like what we do. And even though he loves every human being as a child of God that has ever lived, he will destroy some because they do not accept his way and his attitude. It's all about attitude, brethren. It's all about attitude. And when you see someone who lives in a negative attitude or an attitude of hatred or malice or spite or backbiting, then you know that is an ungodly attitude. And we need to stay away from ungodliness. It will pull us down. It will hurt us. It may even cause us to begin to have some of the same attitudes. Birds of a feather flock together because they are in agreement or accord or they are thinking somewhat the same way. And the more they flock together, the more they're going to think the same. And the whole flock will be destroyed. We need to flock together with those who have a positive attitude toward God and man. We need to make that distinction. Verse 10, He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So he contrasts it. Anyone who has a negative approach to human beings, and a specific one to certain human beings, has an ungodly attitude and should be, in that sense, avoided. Now, we're all going to have upsets and attitudes and uh, difficulties. But we have to get past it, you see. You have to overcome it. You have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So anybody can get in a bad attitude. The point is, do you retain it or do you get over it? Now, God makes it very clear what we're supposed to do. He says, if we're angry with a brother, you get over it before sundown. You've got from 1 to 23 hours 
to get over it, whatever it is. If you let it stay, it takes root and gets deeper and deeper, and then you get more and more negative and more and more bitter, and there'll come a point where all the light is gone from your life. You cannot be around negativity. God says don't be around it. Now, any one of us can be in a negative attitude at any time. We can get that way in a flash, it seems. The key is, how soon do we get over it? It's something that God instructs us to get over by sundown. In other words, that is an attitude of Satan the devil. And we should not stay in a satanic attitude. We should address that as our number one priority. Think like God, not like Satan. He is the one who is full of bitterness and anger and frustration and misery and accuses the brethren before God's throne every day. So, anyone who is an accuser has a satanic attitude. Do we want to be around Satan and Satan's attitudes? No. He says, draw near to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if we cozy up to him and buddy up to him through one who calls himself a brother, then we will eventually come to have the same attitudes. And that is not a godly attitude. Could you be part of the kingdom of God and be a king and a priest in the world tomorrow for a thousand years with Christ and have an attitude of negativity toward headquarters? Have an attitude of negativity toward any other part of the bride of Christ? No. There would be absolutely no room for that, period. So God puts us here in a situation where we are subject to human nature, to animosity, negativity, hatred, all kinds of negative human emotions or satanic emotions. And he tells us, overcome those. Don't let them prevail in your life. Christ never had them. That isn't the way he walked. And we are to overcome that. Now, we're not to be around it what he says. He'll say that very clearly here in a little bit. So he's not talking to the world in general here. He's talking about brothers. Now our neighbors could be anybody in the world, but our brothers are those who have the Spirit of God, members of God's true religion. They're our brothers, and we can't hate any of them. We can't have hateful attitudes toward any of them. Somebody might say, I don't hate But what do all their words, their feelings, their body language say? He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So he says, if you truly love your brother, you're keeping the commandments, you're loving him as yourself, then you will not cause stumbling. What causes stumbling? In the first place, 
we stumble when we're fed bad information. When you're walking down the road and the light is shining and there's nothing in your way, you're not too likely to stumble. Well, if you're 90 years old, you might, but normally speaking, you don't stumble. But when there are things in the way, or it's dark, then it's easy to stumble. Ask Nelson why there's a big brown spot on this white propane tank back here. He was running in the dark one night and tripped over the redwood rail out there and hit his head on the propane tank. His head hurt a little bit, but the tank has the paint all missing. I don't know which is the hardest, but <laughs> I'll poke a little fun here. But it's when it's dark that we stumble. He could have been running in the daylight and he wouldn't have stumbled on that and hit that tank. I wouldn't have done a lot of the things I've done either. But he says, you're walking in darkness if you hate your brother. Now, if you love your brother and you're taking care of him, then you're walking in the light and you won't cause anyone to stumble. But it's when we're in a bad or a negative or a down attitude that we can cause other people to stumble by the negativity that we project. Now, they need to overcome it, change and grow and get over it and be a Christian. And we need to stay away from it so that we don't become a non-Christian. That's what John's saying here. He that hates his brothers in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. We can become blinded by negativity so very, very easily. And there's a lot of it in the church of God today. There's a lot of scattering. There's a lot of splintering. There are a lot of negative attitudes around the world. And that's because we're not keeping the commandments of God. We're not loving our neighbor or our brother as ourselves. We put them down. We're breaking the commandments. And if you say you keep you say you love God and you don't keep the commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Well, there's the litmus test for you. Verse 12, I write to you, little children. Now, he was in his 90s here, so probably everyone he was writing to was younger than he was. So, in his eyes, they were little children. If they were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years of age, they were children to him. Now, maybe he writes that in part because he's writing some very basic things here. So it may not have been only physical age he's talking about, but maybe spiritual age as well. Because he understood the connection between the love of God, true agape, and sin and hatred and loving our brother as ourselves. So if they needed this instruction, then they were spiritually in the dark, even though they thought they were in the light. 
So Paul, I mean, not Paul, John is here showing us the difference between dark and light. Now, how basic can you get to know that difference? So he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So as we walk and we repent and we ask for forgiveness and attempt to keep his commandments and walk as Christ walked, then he is willing to forgive us our sins. Now that's the good news here and all that we've said so far, is there is opportunity for forgiveness But if we continue to walk in darkness, where does that forgiveness come from? Verse 13, I write to you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. So he addresses, I think, everyone as little children in that sense. And then he addresses older men, those who are mature and have reached fatherhood. Because you've known him that is from the beginning. So they were old enough to know Christ uh, on the earth. The early New Testament church of God only lasted about 70 years in toto. That's all it was. So anybody who was mature might have gone back far enough to even seen Christ walking on the earth and heard his teachings and was maybe alive at the institution of the New Testament church. So, fathers, you've known him from, that is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. So, he addresses all age groups here. And, you know, the Proverbs even say that a child is known by his actions, even a little child. So, if we teach a child God's instruction and his way, when they're small, again the Proverbs say, when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, John is saying, you little children have been taught the truth by your parents. You young men, who didn't maybe know of Christ in the New Testament church at its beginning, have nevertheless come to understand the truth and are following it. And that's saying something for young people. So he's being encouraging and complimentary here. Even as we have little children who are learning God's truth today, we have young people who are not out in the world doing the things of the world and overcoming the wicked one or Satan and his ways when we're young is very difficult. So he's encouraging those people who are walking God's way and walking in the light in spite of their nature, in spite of the world around them. They have committed themselves to follow God's truth. And he's explaining the difference between darkness and light here. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning... I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So he repeats it. This is important. 
that you have young people who are actually following the laws of God. Who are putting him first and their neighbor second, along with themselves, as human beings. How can you hate someone who is a child of God? How can you hate anybody that is a child of God? God loves them all. And if you're to be like God, you have to love them all. Maybe not their sins, maybe not their faults, but you have to love them because they are a human being. Verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, how does the world basically live? Some have a moral code or ethic or ethical approach to one degree or another. Some people are very moral and very ethical, <coughs> and yet they may not believe in the commandments of God. And they're living the way of the world that is around them, whatever that might be in their culture and society. So he said, if you love those things that are out there in Satan's culture, in his society, and remember, he is the God of this world. Presently, he is. He runs it. He rules it. He influences those who are in positions of government or authority in it because they live by their human nature and by his ways and do not follow the Constitution of God, this book, or His commandments, which are this book boiled down to ten and boiled further down to two principles, love God and love man. Now, you can kid yourself that you have agape and you may only have filios, human emotion and feeling and love. If you don't keep the commandments and love your brother, you don't have agape. If you hate your brother, you don't have God's love. It does not exist in your mind. So, repentance is needed so that the love of God can replace the attitude of Satan. It's just that simple. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, we're told that God hates pride and resists anyone who has pride. Pride is one of the commonest attitudes in this world among human beings. He talks about how the young man is proud of his muscular strength. People are proud of their intellect. People are proud of their jobs. They're proud of their children. They're proud of their looks. They're proud of a lot of things and have nothing to be proud of. Did you give yourself the intelligence you possess? Did you give yourself the looks you might have? What do you have that came from you? 
nothing. See, Christ was totally without pride. He said, of myself I can do nothing. And he meant that. He was a human being with all the desires, the pulls, the human motives that we have. He was tempted in every point as we are. Those desires were there. He had more reason, if anybody has reason to be proud, than anyone. He was the Son of God. But did you hear him going around saying, Don't you know who I am? (laughs) No, never did it. He says, You say... But he didn't brag about it. He didn't take pride in it. He didn't lift himself above anybody else. He humbled himself. He was willing to bow and wash his disciples' feet, and they weren't even converted. And told us to have the same attitude. Do we have a foot-washing attitude when we're putting somebody who is a brother in God's church down in any form or fashion. Are we symbolically washing their feet, making them feel uh, better, refreshed, whatever, they wore sandals, they got their feet dirty and dusty and dry and hot, and washing the feet was cool and refreshing, and you had to get down on your knees to do it. You had to bow before them to reach out and get a hold of their feet. So it was an act of humility. And when we are standing upright behind someone, stabbing them in the back, that is not an act of humility. Whether what we're saying is true or false, it is not an attitude or an act of humility. Do we grasp the difference? Because people say, yeah, but this is true. That doesn't matter. If we are putting someone down and showing hatred and animosity to them, it is a satanic attitude even if it's true. Do you realize the many things that Satan takes before the throne of God and accusing you and me of are absolutely true? Many of them may be lies. But I dare say a majority of what Satan takes to God is the absolute truth. Because Satan knows that God knows the difference. Now, is Satan justified in putting you and me down because what he is saying is the absolute truth about what we did or what we think or what our attitude is? No, he is not justified in that. The very attitude of having or being an accuser is a satanic attitude, be the accusation right, wrong, or in the middle. It is the attitude that is wrong. Satan never goes before the throne of God and says anything good about you and me. Never, ever, 
Everything is accusation. Everything is negative. We need to be very, very careful that we do not put ourselves in a satanic attitude and approach. Pride is one issue. People just sometimes want to bust their buttons talking about how proud they are of their son. Even God the Father did not say, I'm proud of you, son. He said, I'm well pleased. Well pleased. That was the accolade he used toward Christ himself. God does not have pride, but he was pleased. We can be very pleased with our children, and we can say, I'm well pleased with you, son. But can we tell our children, I'm proud of you? I don't think there's room for that. If the father can't say it of his very own son who was perfect, how can we go beyond what the father says, especially when he says that pride is a wrong attitude and wrong approach? But everything out there in this world, in this society, the lust of the flesh, what does lust of the flesh mean? It can mean, among other things, I suppose, an inordinate or unlawful desire, whatever that might be. That can encompass a lot of things. But any desire that is unlawful, according to the code of this word, is the lust of the flesh. Covetousness can be covered in that. Uh, covetousness covering anything that is your neighbor's. Well, this world is filled with lust, and through its electronic media, it promotes it. Lust of every kind. The lust of the eyes, what we see, what we hear, even the lust of the ears doesn't mention it in particular. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Even life itself we're not to be proud of. Thankful we lived another day. The world passes away, and the desires of the world. But he that does the will of God abides forever. So eternal life is offered to us if we will have God's attitudes, God's approach to walk as Christ walked. And he's made it very clear here in this whole context that the way of this world, which is lawlessness, won't work. If we obey the law and walk as Christ walked, then we have eternal life offered to us. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that an Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, he was in the time when the early New Testament church was in serious falling away. Uh, the church virtually disappeared right after the death of John. And it's hard to find. You can find little groups here and there through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, uh, the early period of so-called enlightenment after the Dark Ages were over. 
You can find little groups here, if you study very carefully, who still kept the Sabbath and the holy days. But they're few and far between. So, he was in the last times of that era of the New Testament church, for sure. Now, he assumed that he was at the end of the age entirely and that Christ would be coming back. And other scriptures make it clear that Christ let them labor under that illusion. Uh, because it helped them grow, helped them overcome, helped them look forward. Now we know we're in the last times. So this applies even more so. And there are many, many who are anti-Christ even though they use the name of Christ. How can you be anti-Christ when you teach the things that are opposite of what Christ taught? The subject here at hand is commandment-keeping. If you teach the commandments are done away, you are anti-Christ. You are teaching, anti just means against. You are against Christ. Because the commandments are very much in effect. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So they had sat in the congregations of the early New Testament church and left, went out from the brethren. Now, Paul made it very clear there in Hebrews that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 10.25 it is. We are to assemble ourselves together with those of like mind. And if we go out from that, he says, they are not of us. In other words, church attendance is mandatory for a Christian. You cannot be an independent Christian. You can't go out there by yourself and claim to be a Christian because he says if you go out from the body of Christ, you are cut off from the body, from the vine, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. And if you're not connected to the vine, you are not alive spiritually. It's just that clear. You have to be connected to the body. If you depart from the body, you have no sustenance. Cut off your hand, cut off your arm. What does it do? It dies, withers, stinks. It has nothing to cause it to live. The blood is quit going through it. And the life is in the blood. So you've got to be connected to the heart, the mind, the body of Christ. And if you disassociate yourself from that and try to be an independent, you're not part of the body and therefore you have no life in you. That's what he's saying here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't really converted. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they are not all of us. So when someone goes out from the body of Christ, they are manifesting, they are proving that they are not of the body. Now in today's milieu of church scattering, they will try to say that they can be independent Christians. But we have an obligation before God 
to find those who are connected to God through the commandment of God and to be part of that wherever we may find it. If we are to be a Christian, we need to be connected to Christ who is the vine and to that part of his body which he says is the church. There is only one true belief, one true doctrine, this book. And we're to follow every word of it. You better find the ones who believe what the Apostle John is saying here. Verse 20, But you have an anointing, unction, 5545 in Strong's means anointing, or a setting aside, a sanctification. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. We have a knowledge, a grasp of the truth. I have not written to you because you know not the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Emmanuel is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. And he's already explained that you do deny them when you say the commandments are done away with. That's the whole treatise here. It's the whole point. (coughs) That that's how you know them. So their churchianity doesn't deny the Father and the Son by word. They believe in them. But they don't do the things that they say, and that makes them a liar, and the truth isn't in them, and it makes them antichrist. So even though they give and use his name, they are against it because they're against his way of life. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And how do we acknowledge? Not hearers of the word, but doers only. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. What did Christ say? From the very beginning of His New Testament ministry, at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it in my life. People say, I came not to destroy the law, I came to destroy the law. That's what they're saying. No, he said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it, to live it, to follow through on it, and even to put a telescope on it, to shed light on it. Yet they deny his teaching. Let that therefore abide in you, in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And what did Christ teach in the beginning of his ministry? Love God, love your neighbor, summation of the Ten Commandments. We have to live by the Ten Commandments. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. So, commandment keeping and eternal life are mentioned in the same breath, same context. You have to keep the law to be in the kingdom of God. And when you do not keep it, if you're trying to, and you sin, you have grace. So it is by grace that we are saved by faith. You can keep 
the commandments. But if you occasionally sin, it only takes one sin to kill you, to keep you out of eternal life. That's why you need grace, is because we all do sin. So it's not law or grace, it's law and grace. Grace is given when we need it. And it is only a gift. The grace of God is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. You cannot earn it by all the good works you do. But Paul does say we are created unto good works. So we're supposed to do good works, but they alone will not save us because we're not going to do all good works, are we? And we are going to sin and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need grace, and we haven't earned salvation because we haven't lived perfectly. Therefore, if He forgives us, He gives us the gift of eternal life. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It is given freely if we do what we are supposed to and ask forgiveness when we don't live up to it. These things have I written to you concerning them that seduce you, who either teach the law of God has done away, or have attitudes that reflect that they are not keeping that law. That is, if they hate their brother, they're negative, they're grudging, they're accusing, then they are not keeping the law, and light is not in them. And they are seducing us with that satanic attitude of negativity. There was a lot of that in John's day, and that's why he writes this. There is a lot of it today, and that is why we read this. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it is taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, there are those who have used this verse to say we don't need teachers. Is that what he's saying? He's saying, no, you've already been taught. You should know this. Now, what is John himself doing? He's teaching. He's teaching these little children, young men, old men, fathers, everyone. So, even as he wrote that, he was in the process of teaching. People ignore context to their own destruction. If you read the whole instruction here, it's quite obvious he's doing some pretty powerful teaching. So he's saying, you don't really need this, but you've forgotten it, and you need to hear it again, so I'm saying it to you. And now, little children, again, he's in a teaching mode. Abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Keep the law, keep the commandments, so when he comes, we will not be ashamed. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is begotten of him. It should be translated begotten. 
not yet born into the kingdom, that which is flesh is flesh, read John 3, that which is a spirit is spirit. So we are only begotten, we're not born into the kingdom of God yet, we're not spirit yet, we're still human. But we are babes still in the womb, spiritual womb of the body, the church, of whom Christ is the head. And we cannot grow apart from the mother. He's made that very clear as well. You cannot depart from the body or the mother. If a child departs from his mother when he's three, four, five months incubated, generally dies. You have to be within the womb to survive. Unless you're mature enough, born preemie, to make it anyway. I think we'll all be born somewhat preemie. We will not be full term. We will not be ready. We will not be perfect. But through the Spirit of God, us preemies can be in the kingdom of God and be changed and be born into the kingdom of God. But let's grow and become mature, overcome and change and keep the commandments of God. Love God above all and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. There's a challenge. Work on that this week.